Hey everybody, Daniel Patrick here, and this is the Mandolins of Beer tribute episode to the incredible Tony Rice. Um, obviously, Tony was a guitar player, but in the mandolin world, I can't even imagine uh, a mandolin world without Tony Rice. The impact he's had on it is so large, so I just wanted to pay tribute to him. Uh, I touched base with some mandolin players who knew him, who played with him, who talked about him on previous episodes, and I really appreciate them taking the time and sharing these really funny, serious, touching, personal stories, and uh, I I just appreciate that they took the time to do this for us to check out. This will be the only time I'm talking, by the way. I deleted myself from all the the things. I just wanted the people to speak for themselves about Tony. It's going to start off with a voice memo I got from Mike Marshall, and it's going to end with a voice memo I got from Dominic Leslie. Everybody else introduces themselves. Cheers, everyone. Let's see, where do I begin? Tony was one of the most important musicians in my musical development since before I met him. I was a fan and listened to all of his records, admired his playing and then had the incredible good fortune to move to San Francisco from Florida at the age of 19 and move into his house and basically mentor under him for a good few years. Um, It was like going to graduate school to get to hang out with him and David Grisman and Daryl Anger and Todd Phillips. But Tony was really like a a beam of very intense bright light whenever he was playing music. Uh, There was a focus and attention to detail and an unbelievable swinging groove that elevated everybody's game. Whoever he was playing with played better. And um, it's only after his sudden passing that it kind of hits you like a pie in the face, um, just how much he meant to not only you, but the entire musical development of American instrumental and vocal roots music since he came on the scene. And we miss him very much. It's um, That's a hard one. But he left us some beauty to really appreciate And um, we can all be thankful to him for that. He worked really hard at his craft and and held a very high standard of excellence in everything he did. Tuning the guitar, singing in tune, playing with an incredible groove, always pushing himself creatively, coming up with new ideas, but firmly embedded in the tradition that he came from. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Daniel, for putting this together. Cheers. Hello, this is Ronnie McCurry. The Bluegrass Album Band had come out with that first record, man, and it was, for anybody my generation, you know, that, that was just like, wow, the super group playing these classic tunes. And so... I had never met Tony Rice, and um, but I knew Doyle Lawson pretty well, and but I never saw Bobby Hicks. 
and I never had seen Tony Rice. Those guys were just on this super high shelf, you know. And I was a kid. I was 16, I guess. We were living in Pennsylvania, and one of the hottest bands at the time uh, was the Johnson Mountain Boys. And they didn't live too far from me, and, and we were all buddies uh they were close to 10 years older than me something like that and uh they were playing in myrtle beach south carolina that was their the annual thanksgiving festival which we did many times but um this year we weren't playing it and and i know i begged my mom dad to let me ride uh down there with the johnson mountain boys and eddie Stubbs was my chaperone and we went down there, and and I uh, that's the first time that I saw that band, and I recorded it from the board with a cassette tape. I remember that. <laughs> and then I, I went backstage, and I had all these albums. Every album I had with Tony Rice's name on it, which, you know, I probably had half a dozen at 16. I don't know. I had Grisman's records. See, that 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 really flipped my switch at Grisman music, you know, and, and Tony was such a big part of that, that first record, man. And, uh, growing up in, in Pennsylvania, there was a station out of Washington, DC, WAMU. He'd already recorded with JD Crow, you know, and they played freeborn man and all that stuff just all the time on these radio stations. So I knew who Tony was. And then I had gotten this Grisman record. David sent it in the mail to my dad. He didn't even know I was playing mandolin at the time. And, and that first record, and I was like, holy moly, what is this, you know? You know, I just, I, I just didn't have any clues. And the, it was so clean and pristine, and the picking was so clean, of course, you know, in my opinion, anybody that has ever picked up a flat pick in their hand and tried to play with a flat pick and you watch Tony Rice and you hear the clarity and you think, how is this guy doing this? You know? And so I'm 16 and I go backstage and and my dad, in uh, he had this little business card I had found at the house and it was, it had a picture on the front of it, a little black and white picture of these kids. And it was the haphazards. And on the back, it said Herb Rice, you know, my phone number and all this, you know, and it was, uh, it was Larry and Tony and Ronnie and they were all Tony, the guitar, if you stood the guitar on the ground with the neck up, he'd be about as tall, you know. <laughs> so I, I took that down there to show him when I met him. And his father had just died about a month before that. He looked at that and stared at it for the longest time and flipped it over, looked at his dad's handwriting. He said, that's my dad's handwriting. I never forgot him saying that to me, you know. That's my dad's handwriting. And because uh, it hadn't been that long since he passed, you know, he appreciated that. He, he signed it. He signed it for me. But um, then he said, hey, uh, yeah, we're all going to be hanging at the motel tonight. I don't know if he I said, well, I, I snuck away from 
Eddie Stubbs, you know, I said, I'll be all right. I'm, I'm going to go hang out with these guys. And he said, are you sure about this? <laughs> Anyhow, we just, they just treated me like, a, a, you know, I was just one of the guys and they were all in there just having a hooting and holler and having a great time. And Bobby Hicks, I couldn't believe it. You know, all these guys were here, you know, and I never forgot that. And, uh, poor says that, the years went on, I was able to play with Tony quite a bit. And when he was losing his voice in the 90s, I guess, uh, I was already living in Nashville. And he asked me to, to play some. They didn't have a mandolin player at the time. So I went and played with the unit for a few and played the rhyming with him. And Yeah, I mean, I just got some great memories uh, hanging with him in hotel rooms and <laughs> stuff one piece of advice he told me when I was a teenager, I was, I, I was just reminded of this is, um, and I was, and I was playing, uh, playing something for him. And at the end of it, he gave me a piece of advice and, uh, he said, man, don't forget to use your pinky. And, uh, <laughs> after that, you know, I was constantly aware of it. You know, he fell one time and he broke his shoulder. And and then his thumb gave him problems and and his elbow. And he just said, he told me, he said, hey, man, I've played a D28 for 50 years. I'm just, it just wore me out. And uh, just the way he plays, he, you know, he did he did what Earl Scruggs did to the banjo. He did to the acoustic guitar in in this music. You know, I, and Jerry Douglas did. You know, I mean, it's just it just can't you can't emulate it. I'll just finish up here. It was he had a dream about a month ago, and he told his wife. He said, uh, "Man, honey, you wouldn't believe this. I just had this dream. I wish you were there to hear this. The music I heard." They said it. I was on stage, and it was me and Ronnie McCurry and Bill Emerson and Mike Bubb and uh, Jerry Douglas. And he said, Bobby Hicks kicked off on and on. And he said, It sounded like a bomb went off, man. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Hi, folks. This is Alan Bobby. Uh, I just wanted to share a little bit of my thoughts on Tony Rice. My dad took me to to Camp Springs, North Carolina in 1975 to see J.D. Crow. And uh, my dad was a big banjo uh, fanatic. And at the time, I had no idea who was going to be playing in the band. So I wasn't really that excited because I was such a manlin geek, even at nine years old or whatever I was at the time. And uh, so we got there and he comes out with this band and these guys, you know, like after the first song or two, I'm just sitting there freaked out because the guitar player and, and mandolin player are just killing it. And come to find out that's Ricky Skaggs. That was Ricky Skaggs and Tony Rice, of course. So after that, that made such a big impression on me. Before that, I was probably playing uh, some, but after that, I was really that's when I really started playing like all the time. And it made such a big impression. And after that, I was such a big fan uh, and 
like I said in one of my Facebook posts, I I was really just a mandolin cat at the time. I followed all the mandolin cats, but after hearing Rice, that was the first guy that was a non mandolin player that I was just crazy about their playing. And um, so I kind of we kind of followed him around in the Grisman thing, and I got to go. I was playing baseball in junior high school, and Sammy Sheeler and I were playing in a band together at the time, and I had a a double header this this afternoon that afternoon after school with our arch rival, and and uh, Tony Rice was playing with Grisman in Chapel Hill that night. So <laughs> I asked my coach. I said, "Man, can I any way I can leave early?" And he said, "Well, if you win, if you went pitch the first game and win, and we get ahead the second game, you can go." So I did, and we and we took off, and we got to see uh, see Rice with the Grisman Quintet. That was the first time I saw him, and it was just unbelievable, of course. And uh, very cool to get to see it with uh, with uh, Sammy, but then as the years went on, uh, you know he came he came back to back to uh, bluegrass and and everybody just was just berserk over him. I mean, I I can totally associate with uh, my buddy Jason Burleson of Blue Highway. who said we were all wearing what he wore, anything he wore, we were looking for it because he was just, not only was he the baddest man on the planet, he he just was just exuded coolness so everything that everything that he did was cool everything he wore was cool so we you know we, i remember he wore a, a this shirt that had a white collar and uh, the first time it didn't so i had to have me one man you know so i went out and got got one of those but then a few years a couple years later i got i uh, took the job with new quicksilver with terry balker and jimmy haley and randy graham and all those guys new tony of course so we played some package shows with those guys uh, about 10 or 12 package shows. So we played every night, went from night, you know, from place to place every night. But after the first night of playing with him, uh, Terry looked at me and said, man, you want to go to, to Rice's room? And I was like, man, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me. You know? And he said, uh, no man, I'm serious. I'm, I'm serious. So we went to Rice's room and just, he was in there by himself and he just, I walked, we walked in and, you know, I was, uh, I was very, uh, probably bashful at that time and not wanting to say anything much, you know, Cause I was just so in awe of him, but uh, he handed me his guitar. So that's the first time I ever played his guitar. So I sat there and played every Tony Rice lick that I knew because that's all I did know. <laughs> so, so, so that was pretty funny. He looked at me and said, man, I'll just get you to record our, my next project for me or whatever. And I said, man, I'm sorry, but that's all I know is your, uh, your guitar stuff. But uh, then later on, it was, you know, it's just really cool to, First, that I got to meet him and do and, and hang out with him after you know we got to be friends during that twelve show run and and then later on he played on my in the blue room CD and I recorded a couple of other projects with him and uh, he was just always so kind. I mean, uh, and find, comes to find out, of course, he was to everybody and uh, and uh, got to play with him a few times on stage. He was all he would always say, "Man, let's do this. We need to pick more." you know, together and stuff like that. Just always, I don't know, just always so encouraging, you know, to everybody. And uh, then even when the, from the time, about when we played with third, when I, we started third time out and recorded our first project with third time out, he wanted to come on the bus and listen to our, we just had finished our first project. He wanted to come on the bus. I mean, he asked me, he said, you might have to come on and listen. And I was like, really, really? <laughs> he said, he said, yeah, man. So he came in and listened, you know, which is so, so uh, complimentary and always, you know, just so cool. And then, you know, later years, I got, I, I 
Jerry Douglas uh, got me in to see uh, uh, the tour they did with uh, Allison. That was so cool of Allison to do with featuring Tony. And, and when, every time I saw him, even then when I hadn't seen him, you know, in a year or two or whatever, it was always, hey, Hoss. He'd always say, hey, hey, Hoss, and hug me real big, you know, and act like he's so glad to see you. And, and then in the, in the last few years, I'd uh, send him a watch every now and then. He would work on it for me and send it back to me. But uh, I don't know if there will ever, ever be another Tony Rice. Not just – I know there will never be another, another guitar player like that, to, in my eyes and in my ears anyway. And uh, But uh, such a per- – what a great person too, man. And, I, and uh, it just uh, – I don't know. It's affected a lot of us more than we, than we ever thought. But I'll just put it – I'll put it – like I told my cousin the other day, we we're always trying to tell funny things. I, I, I said, I told him that uh, that Michael Jordan was the Tony Rice of basketball. That's the kind of way. I, that's that's the way I look at it. So, but uh, I, I I love him and I always will. Hi, it's uh, John Reichman, and uh, like everyone else, I've been thinking about Tony a lot lately, and mostly my time I spent with him. Um, I guess I first heard of Tony uh, from a a music store in San Francisco, the Fifth String, and they talked about this guy who was really a a great guitar player I had never heard of, and uh, so we got the record, and I thought, man, this guy is pretty pretty awesome and it was the very first tony rice record and i guess the association for them was he had been in playing next door at paul saloon uh with jd crow in the new south on the way to japan and then you know one thing led to another and tony ended up moving to california and and joining the david grisman quintet and i saw that band uh several times so i, I was exposed to more of his his jazzy playing and um was just um you know, amazed by the whole band, and Tony was was just part of that big equation, and um, moved to the Bay Area. I was kind of back and forth between my home in Northern California and San Francisco, and I moved to the Bay Area, joined the Good Old Persons, and uh, I met Tony in you know, just, I guess at that same bar, Paul Saloon, you know, we'd play there and he'd come by after a gig or come by after a rehearsal. And and we talked a little bit and, um, you know, I was completely surprised when I, someone told me, Tony Rice is trying to get a hold of you. Uh, he was looking for a mandolin player. So, so, you know, it was pretty, pretty shocking and, uh, exciting. So, um, went over and hung out with him and he, played me um his most recent records i guess it was mar west hadn't actually come out yet but he had a a press test pressing of it and uh sat and listened to his amazing sound system and it was just it was just great music you know different than the grisman quintet in that it was more free uh in the jazz sense i guess less arranged maybe and like they'd play the melodies and then everybody would just solo and then they'd go back to the melody and and it was so it's pretty straightforward but the playing was amazing and you know with sam bush my favorite mandolin player on a lot of it and i just remember that stereo i could just hear the (laughs) the pick sizzle from the from the high end of that of that sound system tony had so he gave me a couple lps and some charts he had and i went home and uh came back a few weeks later and it was just so gratifying the reaction i got from him because i i you know i really worked on getting 
the tunes down as best I could, you know, not a lot of tunes, but three or four of them, five of them. And, um, he was so encouraging. He just said, I had no idea you could play like that. I'm not looking for another mandolin player. And, you know, which is so, you know, such a boost to my confidence. And he can, he could just continue to, to be positive that way. And, um, you know, encouraging and it took a while. That was like, I, I guess it was 40 years ago in, uh, this past February. And, um, it was just me and him who would rehearse a lot because Todd, who was to be the bass player, Todd Phillips had uh, left the Bay area for a period of time. He was up in Washington. And, um, so Tony and I would just get together and play the tunes and, you know, he'd, you know, help me sort out how to voice some of these, uh, chords that, you know, cause they were not just triads there, you know, they're extended jazz chords, a lot of them. And, and that was one thing I remember that he seemed to appreciate about my playing is that I could voice a chord so you could hear the, the, the key notes in it that were important to, you know, suggest the progression. And I was trying to get, um, a sustained sound. And I guess in some ways I was trying to mimic the way he played guitar. So the thing about playing with Tony, which was amazing, you know, it was, it was kind of, it took me a while to just relax and, and not, you know, get out of my head and just play. You know, when I joined, I, I realized, man, I have to go on stage with one of the greatest musicians of all time. And I'm filling the shoes of, or at least attempting to fill the shoes of David Grisman and Sam Bush, two of my favorite mandolin players of all time. So it was, I, I took it seriously and I spent a lot of time learning the tunes and practicing and trying to get better on my instrument. So when it came time to play with him, that combined with the, the, uh, it's, it's hard to say somewhat, I read somewhere, Someone said it was like playing playing with Tony playing rhythm is like stepping on a like a magic carpet. You just it was just kind of felt effortless. I mean, I'm sure that's not wasn't always the case, but it just really you know gave me an opportunity to, to excel to the extent that I could. And um, it in you know his rhythm playing. I mean, he, he's just a great guitar player all around and obviously beautiful tone and great solos. But to me, the, the thing that really set him apart was his rhythm playing. Anyway, um, Tony was just great and he'd hang out and, you know, he'd call me up and say, what are you doing? Offer to take me fishing. And, and so that went on for most of that year of 1980. And then uh, he was looking for a fiddle player the whole time and found Fred Carpenter, uh, suggested, I think, by Daryl and Mike. And Fred came out and Todd came back down from Washington State. And we started rehearsing because we had three gigs lined up at the end of, of December of uh, 1980. And uh, we rehearsed. Seems like the rehearsals started you know, like late at night, like nine or 10 o'clock. And then we'd play for a while and then go get something to eat. And, and, uh, so we played those gigs and it, it was, um, three gigs. The third one was the great American music hall, which is like, you know, I'd never played there before. It was where I used to hear all my heroes, you know, the Grisman Quintet and Joe Pass and Stefan Grappelli and all these people. And I, you know, I was on stage with Tony Rice there. It was just unbelievable. That band, you know, changed a little bit. Uh, the very last incarnation, uh, Fred had left and Wyatt came in. So the last gig we played was at Winfield in 83. And that was Todd and Tony and his brother Wyatt and me on mandolin. And then uh, after that, he stayed around the Bay Area a little bit and then ended up 
moving to the East Coast and started the new unit and um, started singing again. So that was kind of the the end of, you know, my frequent uh, visits with Tony, but then I'd see him, you know, at festivals on the East Coast, like Merle Fest or uh, Winter Hawk or something like that. And he was always just super warm and, you know, seemed very happy about the time we spent together. And um, I'm proud to say when he cites his favorite recordings, I think, I think one is Manzanita and the other one is Backwaters, which I played on. So... That was um, that was really something to to hear that. Hey everyone, this is Adam Steffi. Currently play with the Dan Faminski band. I first heard of Tony Rice off of the uh, David Grisman Quintet album uh, on Kaleidoscope Records. I first got to see Tony perform live in Johnson City at the Down Home in Johnson City, Tennessee, A little club there. I'll never forget, he walked out on stage and kicked off Blue Railroad Train. I just, uh, the whole place came unglued, but it just, uh, it had a profound impact on me, as did uh, all of his recordings and albums and everything. This has been a huge loss to uh, to lose Tony. His effect on what what I've done is, I, I couldn't possibly put into words. And fortunately, uh, years ago, I had the chance to tell him that, and uh he was such a gracious man, you know, he said, I just, man, I just play guitar. That's uh, an understatement if everyone has been uttered. But, you know, as a mandolin player, uh, folks may not think that uh, Tony would, would have that big of an effect, uh, you know, as opposed to someone like a Bill Monroe or Sam Bush or David Grisman. But um, as a guitar player and and, and having been able to uh, – to see him perform live many times, actually have the good fortune of being able to perform on stage with him several times. His impact on on what I what I listen to, what I think about when I'm playing, was just profound. He often went overlooked. Uh, that might sound strange, but the things he did rhythmically in a in any situation he was a part of was was just. A, a key element of, of anything he was he was included in and certainly the albums that he did over the years the, the first one of his solo recordings that really caught my ear was manzanita and i've i've told a lot of people if i if i only had one album that i could keep and, and have the desert island album would be manzanita that rec that recording along with shortly thereafter the release of the bluegrass album band recording and the uh, several volumes of that that came out were just uh, huge on uh, on uh, my approach and and what i what i really began to enjoy and still do and those recordings are really timeless for me a lot of people may may not listen to them as as much as i have but uh, i feel like those really formed the way I approach this type of music and, and bluegrass. There have been a lot of other players that have come and gone, and uh, certainly guitar players, but Tony has had an impact on, uh, I think, everyone on every instrument, and certainly on me. Several years ago, I believe it would have been around 2008 or nine. it was in the wintertime, I got a call to come and actually do some live shows with Tony and Peter Rowan. Mark Schatz is playing bass, so... That was just a dream uh, come true to to be able to to stand next to Tony for several shows and uh, and watch him perform and uh, see how he approached things and his whole uh, his mindset as he as he played. 
it was like turning a, a faucet on. I mean, he, he just, it just flowed out of him. It, it, it certainly had a profound impact on me being able to, uh, to stand with him and play. I was fortunate enough to be able to do several, several studio recording things with him over the years. I'll, uh, I'll be able to, to cherish that and, uh, and remember all that, uh, for the rest of my life. I consider it an honor to have been able to do all those things and, uh, to get to know him a little bit. Tony was a very private man, but, uh, but a very gracious man. If, uh, somehow I can be as gracious as Tony was to, to, uh, other players, uh, throughout, throughout my life, that, that would be, that would be a, a real honor. It's, it's been a, it's been one of the highlights of my, my playing career in general to, uh, to be able to have, have performed and played with him in the studio and uh, get to know him a little bit. Yeah. He's, he's going to be missed, going to be missed. And certainly, uh, certainly uh will be missed by me uh, i look forward to uh to listening to his recordings uh, and keeping that memory in my mind his loss will be will be always remembered my name's billy bright i play the mandolin one of the groups that i played with was with the great tony rice i spent about four or five years working with him from 1999 through 2004 and was with him and Peter Rowan and we had a quartet and I got to do a couple gigs as a mandolin player for the Tony Rice unit as well, which was that felt like a real accomplishment <laughs> because I'll, I'll tell you, it was really strange for me getting to play with Tony because it wasn't like he was in a long line of guitar heroes or acoustic musicians that I had fallen in love with over the years. He was pretty much the only one. And I had, and I had only discovered him and his music, I mean, less than five years before I was playing in a band with him. To say it was the stuff of dreams would be, I, I don't know, it wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily do it justice because I would have never been even as so presumptuous as to even have dreamed that I would be, be playing with him. So it was, um, I didn't grow up in acoustic music or any of that stuff. I just kind of came to it. I found it when I was 18 or 19 or so, and it, it kind of saved me and I got into Grisman and all that stuff, which eventually led me to Tony Rice. So Tony was, and it led me to the Bluegrass Album Band and all of Tony's recordings. So he was like the guy for me. And then I ended up, one thing led to another. You know, it is a, I didn't realize it, but it is a, the acoustic music world is a small one. And it was especially back then. There was nobody hardly at all my age at the time who was interested in that music. It was all either people that were 10 years old or 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 many years older than me. So it was kind of a, I think there was a little um, hiccup in that, in our generation um, in the acoustic music world. <laughs> but anyway, as it, as it relates to Tony ending up playing with Peter is how I ended up playing with Tony. The first time I ever played with him was at a place called the handlebar in South Carolina. And I remember it was, it was the week that the pizza tapes had come out and I never even got that into the pizza tapes because I had already 
the Garcia Grisman record, that first one that starts with Thrill is Gone is the one that, that got me into Grisman and the mandolin. And when I, and I was a guitar player at the time, when I heard Tony Rice play the guitar, I was basically like, okay, I'm switching instruments, you know? And then I remember walking into the backstage at the, at the venue and Tony was standing there and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was, I didn't really think it was ever going to happen. Um, even going into the gigs and, uh, and then he was like, Oh, you must be Billy. I've heard a lot about you, you know? And I was like, Oh my God. You know, I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't, I just couldn't even believe it. And he, he was just, uh, very, very encouraging from the, from the get go, which is saying a lot because I mean, I feel like I could barely play my way out of a wet paper bag at the time. And, um, he, he was one of those guys who, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I I can't say that he like chose me to be the mandolin player in the band because he didn't really just kind of happen through one thing coming together and him being willing to do it. But that's the thing is he certainly wasn't unwilling to do it. You know what I mean? And he, and he could have been, (laughs) he was very encouraging right from the get go. And that's the one thing I will say about it. You've heard people say, I'm sure, you know, never meet your heroes. (laughs) He was certainly an exception to that rule in in my in my book. A real, it was like my, it was like going to college or something. It was a very very informative um, time in my life. My learning curve at that point was pretty much a wall, um, you know. So so it was it was extreme and and uh, something I've that's occurred to me about him is 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 that you know he was his his music meant so much to so many people and that's what i that was something that was really really informative to me um like that first gig i told you about that 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 i did was when the pizza tapes had been out for about a week so he had he had gained this whole new legion of like you know legitimate grateful dead fans based on the 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 garcia the garcia thing you know which we, you know, when you play with Peter, you kind of get that anyway because of the old and in the way stuff. You know, um, he's got a lot of, of of deadhead fans and stuff like that. But but when the pizza tapes thing came out, and then Peter and Tony together, and it's like you know, it was kind of like those venues all of a sudden were just slammed with a, a huge diversity of of all these fan bases coming together. You know, Tony's bluegrass fans that that span the whole spectrum of every style of you know if you talk about bluegrass and all the subgenres that it has now he's in every single one of those <laughs> you know what i mean and and so you really understood like how much his music meant to people because you couldn't walk through any you couldn't walk anywhere like at a festival or something with him without i mean people just you know having these reactions that you don't just don't see them have to for, for anybody else, you know, I mean, like Beatles kind of stuff, like, you know, falling on their knees, crying kind of, you know, just, just stuff like it was like so powerful. And, and, you know, that's the way I felt about his music. And it's like, and, you know, I realized that, wow, like I'm not the only person that feels this way. And he was a super nice guy, super humble guy. You would never, if he if he 
if he um, skirted away from from people, you know, tried to not be barraged by people, it's just because it seemed like it made him uncomfortable in an awkward way to 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 uh, <laughs> to have people talking to him about how great he was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what I really loved about working with him for so long and learned from him is a lot of subtle, subtle things about just about playing music in general. Um, like he was, he wasn't into like sitting down and going through the tunes and picking through everyone's parts and stuff. He was kind of just like, he would never ever tell anyone what to play or even make suggestions. You know, it would be, it would never be verbal anyway. He would speak to you with his guitar. I mean, you know, when he would look across the stage at you and do some rhythm thing with his guitar you'd be like okay i'm tightening up i'm tightening up now i'm not gonna do whatever it was i was just spacing out noodling on i'm gonna pull it together here something that he said early on which i still carry with me even even with in-ear monitors even with the best sound situation even with all the the circumstances um I remember being backstage somewhere and he said, uh, and it was just like, we had just played and we're doing a set break and, you know, about to do a whole other set. And, and we were used to, even with just with this outfit that we had, and I'm sure he was used to it from his entire career playing music of people not being able to hear him and people yelling, turn up Tony's guitar. And, you know, from the, from the audience and people getting, you know, genuinely, irate <laughs> you know what i mean i mean you take an extreme tony rice fan and put him in a their one chance in their life to see tony play live and then they can't hear him they you know their reactions were crazy um i remember we were back on set break and i was like i was like man i just can't hear anything the monitors are sucking so you know i was just complaining moaning groaning and he said something to the effect of He's like, oh, just play like you can. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, wow, that's that's brilliant. Because really, that's all you can do, you know, um, uh, is just play like you can hear it. This makes me think of another of another thing with him. It's, there was this tour before the term jam grass was a was a was a music genre, but they called it the jam grass tour. I think was what it was called, but it was. It was the Rowan Rice Quartet, the Sam Bush Band, the David Grisman Quintet, Hot Tuna was on some of the bills, um, and Yonder Mountain String Band was on all of them. Uh, who else? The Dark Star Orchestra was on some of them. And uh, it was just like, it was during a big acoustic music boom. And um, I think the people who had put the, the the tour together had sort of expected it to sort of promote itself, you know, sort of in the way that a lot of the, a lot of those jammy type events seem to do regardless of what they'd done. The ticket sales were very bad. And, so, you know, we'd be playing sometimes in these sheds that held 20,000 people to like 1500 people. And um, so it was not a successful tour. Anyway, during that time, the tours were, were weird and weird stuff was happening and breakdowns and, you know, travel problems and all this stuff. And Tony at some point during the end of the tour had these stickers made. Tony wasn't always the super hangout guy, usually because he had to get in his, 
Mustang or his toy, as he referred to it, and drive drive himself to the next gig. Um, so it was very seemingly out of character for him one day when he shows up in the middle of this tour at the bottom of the bottom of this tour. And he had this roll of stickers that he had had made that he was passing out to everybody. There were these tiny little yellow stickers, just a circle. But he had had it printed on it. It said one show at a time. He handed them out to everybody when the morale was at the lowest. And um, I thought that was really cool. I mean, he was that kind of dude. Like he'd seen seen it all, done it all, and and was just uh, zen like in his in his approach. You know, he wasn't didn't seem like he was thinking about what was going to be going on a year from now or what had gone on a year before that. He was just show up and do the gig and get on down the line. Well, hello, hello everybody. Uh, this is Doyle Lawson, and uh, we're here today to speak uh, a few words and to uh, honor and, and uh, remember uh, my dear friend, uh, the great guitarist and vocalist, Tony Rice. Let me go back to where I became aware of Tony. Uh, in uh, in 1970, after a, a, a short stand back with uh, Jimmy Martin, I went back to Kentucky to work with J.D. Crow. And uh, when I left Crow in in uh, in '69, uh, he had hired a young man from Los Angeles, California, by the name of Larry Larry Rice to play mandolin and, and fill the slot that I had vacated. So I go back, and when uh, when J.D. called me to, to come back, it was as a guitar player and, and not as a mandolin player. So And I had no problem with that. I'd done both with him anyway, and that's how I got acquainted with Larry. As it turned out, uh, Larry and I, well, we lived uh, right next door to each other in Lexington. And uh, his younger brother, Tony, would come up and visit and stay a few days. And uh, I was so impressed as a, as a young man. I'm, uh, see, in, in 1970, I'm about 26. And so do the math, and, and that shows you how young Tony was. You know? so, so we were together a lot. And But Tony would come up and visit. And the thing that I always remembered about him was the fact that he never – I never saw him without his guitar in his hands. And I'm talking literally, uh, even when he was sitting down to uh, to lunch or breakfast, where uh, he had his guitar and he would eat a few bites of food, play his guitar for a while, continue eating. Now, I, I witnessed this firsthand and I know what I'm talking about, you know. And, and he was just totally into the, the guitar, the, the lead playing, you know, and... Uh, uh, obviously, you could hear traces of uh, of Clarence White, uh, who, who he totally really admired his playing. But uh, but I don't know. He, you know, the back then the the lead guitar players were sort of few and far between. Uh, Doc Watson, of course, and uh, Deacon Dan Crary, uh, and uh, and Clarence White. And really, those were about the three at that at that time that were really uh, making people take notice of, of the guitar in a lead role as 
uh, as opposed to just nothing but rhythm in 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 our genre of music, of course. But I was impressed with with Tony, and uh, so. In 1971, I left uh, in, at the end of August of 71. I, I, I took the job with the country gentleman and moved to the Washington, D.C. area. And Tony was working with the Bluegrass Alliance by then. And so it was kind of uh, a natural thing for him just to move over and take the guitar spot with, with, with J.D. So you had the, the two Rice brothers. Well, in, in 79, I, I put my band together. Well, in 1980, I got a call from, from Tony. And we had never, I had never sang with, with Tony, but I had watched his career. And of course, he, he moved uh, away from Crow and he, and he was exploring the, the, the endless boundaries of a guitar. And he was, he was taking it to his fullest in, in his explorations, you know, and he was, he was so inquisitive about about the music, uh, not only in our music, but uh, other the other genres of music, he was he was really intrigued by it, and you could tell that. But anyway, I get a call from from Tony, and uh, he says, "Hey, uh, I want to do a traditional bluegrass album. I I want to do something that's nothing but right down the middle traditional." He said, you know, because, you know, J.D., he, they sort of consider him uh, like maybe country grass, and, and you're, they look on at you more like a uh, progressive, more progressive uh, or contemporary, if you will. And he said, and that, and he said, I don't think they know what I'm doing. <laughs> but he said but but the bottom line is he said we all we all grew up with the first generation music we all love it would you be willing would you be interested and willing i said absolutely and so we talked to him and he said uh what do you think because uh, i had used bobby hicks on my first and second recording anyway he said do you think bobby hicks might be interested i said i bet you he would let me let me give you his telephone number. And so I gave him Bobby's number and that's, that's kind of the way it started. And, uh, uh, we had never really sang together. Never had, I never really, really picked with, with Tony. Cause I, you know, I was working with Crow and I was off to other things, but anyway, Crow and I, I think, and, and Bobby met in Atlanta uh, at the airport and, and flew out together. He was still in California. And we, we, JD and I jotted down the list of just a bunch of songs that we might be interested in. And we've got there. Tony had had he he made him the list too. So this is this is kind of how we we selected our songs. Uh, we somebody would mention one. Who knows that one? Yeah, yeah, I know it. Yeah, oh yeah. And uh, so uh, our rehearsals were to figure out who was going to take the breaks where and we'd run through it we'd run through it maybe once and then record it but uh, and again I I became aware of not only the guitar player that Tony was but what a great lead vocal he had and how easy it was to sing with and uh, and I I, 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 I don't I don't want to sound boisterous. I don't mean it that way, but I, I felt like that uh, that my voice 
Tony's lead blended so good with my voice. It made it easy uh, to, and, you know, and of course, I loved singing tenor. That gave me an opportunity because I was doing uh, different things with, with my band. And so I got to go back and do the bluegrass and, and sing tenor. That's what, that was right. You know, that was a joy. But he was so easy. Uh, his phrasing, his enunciation, it was it was just uh, a joy. And uh, I cannot describe the feeling that, that, that I felt, and I think we all did, in the studio. Uh, we only intended to do one. We got, I think we, we recorded a couple or three songs, not too deep into the recording. And Tony, after a playback, he comes out, he said, wait a minute. This is not my album, although it was. He owed Rounder, I think, he, uh, an album. It was his. It was his deal. We were just going. He said, "This is a effort. This is a, a band album. This is ours, not mine." And that's. He was clear about it. And one thing about Tony, when he decided something, that was the way it was. And uh, so. Uh, we we did the one, and I I can tell you I don't think any of us thought about the impact that they had. Uh, we we just didn't. We wanted to do it because to show people how much we loved the the the, the bluegrass world, you know, the, and the, going back to the to the roots of it, you know. And so before I knew it. Got a call. Hey, they want us to do another one. But again, uh, it turned in, and people would come up and say, "When's your next recording come out?" It would say, "Hold on, wait a minute. We're not, we're not even a band, you know. We, we're not really. Uh, fact that we didn't have a name. That's why we called it the Bluegrass Album Band because we thought there was going to be just one, you know. Uh, I, I struggle with, with words about uh, the loss of Tony at the. Uh, even though he's been more or less out of the, the circuit for a while, uh, maybe he might have been physically, but certainly not his presence. Was it still felt? It's felt every time you see a young guy step up in the microphone with a guitar and tear it up. You know where you know where it came from, and so while he was not. In the scene for uh, for uh, uh, quite a number of years, due to the, the 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 things he had to deal with, his presence was always there and will will always be. To to me, I mean, he 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 might have left us, but but he hasn't left. Hey, this is Jared Walker here, and I just wanted to share a few memories of mine about Tony Rice. Tony Rice was one of the artists that my whole family could agree on. My mom came to bluegrass through my dad. And one of the ways that she got into bluegrass was through Tony Rice and through the new grass revival and Alison Krauss. So we listened to a lot of Tony Rice because of that. Uh, you know, you got to make mom happy. The the records that really stand out to me were Manzanita, Sings Gordon Lightfoot, and Native American. And we just wore those records out. I, I know every solo from all of those records. 
and they're deeply ingrained in my memory and my musical DNA. And I feel very fortunate for that. I was only able to meet Tony a couple times and he was always very kind. He didn't say a whole lot. He was always very well-dressed, dressed to the nines every time I saw him. And he just had this mystique about him. I remember the, the first time that I, that I saw him in person was playing a show in Live Oak, Florida at the Spirit of the Swanee Music Park, which is uh, where I saw a lot of my first, which was my really my introduction to hippie bluegrass music as in Tony and Peter Rowan. And I saw, I saw Tony play with Vassar Clements and David Grisman there. It was, it was really cool. And I think I was so young at the time it, it registered to me, but only as much as it can really register to a eight or nine year old kid. But now looking back at that stuff and seeing pictures, it's, it's really really incredible. I remember the first time that I was actually in the same room with Tony. I was in this jam at IBMA in this suite for, for artists who had played the musicians against childhood cancer bluegrass festival in Ohio. And at this time, everybody would go into this room. It was Daryl Atkins put it on. It was Daryl Atkins suite. And he would have, have it every year. And it had the reputation of kind of being the place to go to, to hear a, you know, a bluegrass album band style jam. And one, one of these days I was in a jam and, and Tony came in. And he, uh, just Tony being there was enough to light the fire of everybody, everybody around. And, you know, the word spread. And so the room was packed, um, not necessarily because of the jam that was happening, just to be, just to be in the same presence as Tony. But I, I just remember distinctly being in that jam and Tony not saying anything you know everybody you know pretending they didn't notice he was there trying to play it cool you know not draw a whole bunch of attention to him but i remember during one of my solos i i hear out of the out of the crowd tony goes yeah and to me that might be the highest praise i've ever gotten from a musician just be just coming from tony it, it just it just meant so much to me, you know, and, and it still still does. I still think about that. It's a kind of I wear it as a badge of honor. It's it's weird to tell that story because it's such a it's such a small little moment that is something that I'm sure Tony forgot the next hour or surely the next morning. But it's something that I'll always carry with me. Another year at IBMA. In that same room, in Daryl Atkins' suite, it was about 3, maybe 3.30 in the morning. 
and everything had wrapped up. Nobody was in the room any longer. And, uh, me and my, me and my friend, uh, Christian Ward, great fiddle player. We were just kind of wandering the halls and, and we stumbled into that room and we were about to wrap things up. And, and we saw a, another, another guy, uh, Mike Ramsey, he was in there. So we just started talking to Mike and, and out of, out of nowhere, you know, we're sitting on the couch and, and walks Tony, you know, once again, dressed immaculately. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in shock just seeing Tony, you know, and, you know, he just had such a presence about him and just, uh, it's, it's like meeting, it would be like meeting, meeting a beetle or something like that to me, just, you know, you know, all of their music and they know nothing about you and you want to tell, you want to tell them how, how, how much all their music means. And you can never quite articulate things the way that you want to in the moment without, without really fanning out and, and sounding like every, every other fan. You know, there, there's only so much that you can say. So I, I really wanted to talk to him about something other than music. So he, he sits down and sits down on the one couch in the room next to me and, and the two guys that were in the room. And he's sitting right next to me. But I somehow brought up uh, being from Florida which Tony lived in Crystal River, Florida, which he always described as a small fishing village in, in Florida, which is, I think, a little bit more romantic than what the what Crystal River actually is. But I, I knew that people scalloped, like caught sea scallops in, well, actually, they would be bay scallops in, in Crystal River. So I started, I started making up this story about how I had just been scalloping in Crystal River, just I, I just was completely lying to Tony, just in a desperate attempt to to make some kind of connection with him. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know why why I dug <laughs> dug so deep to to come up with this fabricated story, but. But I, I did get a, a slight reaction out of Tony. I don't remember exactly what I said. I just remember that I was so nervous and starstruck to be around Tony that I had to lie about scalloping in Crystal River. Well, hello again, everybody. Don Sternberg here. Thanks to Dan for uh, inviting me to uh, say a few words about the great Tony Rice. My remembrance is today we'll actually go back to about 1972 or 73 somewhere in there when as a young uh, bluegrass musician just getting turned on to the music i actually discovered larry rice first and he had come into the university of chicago folk festival playing with jd crow and the kentucky mountain boys that band, that sound, that type of music blew my mind, and I was a goner for bluegrass music from that point on, in large part due to Larry Rice, a very, very inventive mandolin player. 
so naturally having you know come to the music that way i really already had my eyes open uh to you know a year or so later when tony rice wound up in the jd crow's band in fact i was a fan of a solo record that uh tony made i think even a little bit earlier than than um when he uh, got in the New South and made that that famous uh, New South record that everybody calls by its serial number, 0044. Anyway, um, uh, you know, I was in a bluegrass band then at that time with my brother. We were such devotees of J.D. Crow. We used to copy all their songs, so we definitely... Uh, uh, you know, and basically, I'm trying to say I was Tony Rice fan, and uh, actually, he became kind of an idol uh, of ours. You know, right from the get go. Uh, I remember flipping out over uh, "Honey, You Don't Know My Mind" with JD on his solo record, on Tony's solo record, which is, I think, it's just called just called "Guitar." You know, aptly enough. There, of course, there's a ton of other songs on there. Um, and then on the uh, on the Crow album with the New South, why that just that like changed the world for all of us. Not only the the genius guitar playing, but the, uh, the beautiful soulful singing. I guess what I'm saying is I've been in awe of Tony Rice for an awful long time. I did get to meet him, and that was when um, the David Grisman Quintet came to Chicago, uh, their their debut in Chicago when they were a very new band. And the opening act for, the, for them was this guy from here, name of Jethro Byrne. So I went to this show, of course, to see all my heroes. You know, thanks to uh, to David and, and Mike Marshall, I got to, you know, come backstage and say hi and, and meet Tony Rice. But while they were playing, and Steve Goodman, uh, Chicago's favorite son, songwriter, and close friend of Jethro. And so we're watching the, the quintet. They hit their opening number. During the number, Goodman's just shaking his head. You know, he, he can't believe it. And somewhere along in there, I don't know if it was at the end of the, their first number, or maybe the second number, but he turned over toward me and he says, there's only two guys on the earth who know how to play the acoustic guitar right. Because one of them is Doc Watson, and the other one is that guy right there. Obviously, I've remembered that moment a long time because uh, he was right. <laughs> Apart from that, I, you know, obviously, we could all go on and on for for years about about Tony's genius and what he meant, you know, to. To uh, to the music, he basically uh, re-engineered uh, guitar playing and uh, singing. See, he uh, really opened a lot of doors, and uh, God bless him. Hey there, this is Sharon Gilchrist. So my first gig with the Peter Rowan Tony Rice Quartet was in January of 2005, playing. Uh, on the jam cruise with them. And I first met Tony on stage 
And he reached across and shook my hand. And when we started playing a set of music for which there was no rehearsal or uh, no songs, I had not been told any songs to prepare ahead of time. And I just ended up having a great time playing. And, um, and then a few months later, they came out to the West Coast and I played with them again. And I realized um, if I wanted to talk to Tony or get his feedback on anything in the shows, I would need to ride with him. He tended to ride to the gigs. Uh, well, he rode to all the gigs by himself. And he drove at night after we'd play through the night to the next town. So I decided to take one of those drives with him. And um, it was just, it was so cool just riding along with him. I ended up deciding to do that pretty much every tour to take one long car ride with Tony and just hang out. Um, but it was so cool because that first ride, I wanted to ask him how, how the rhythm was feeling to him and uh, if he had any suggestions, because the quartet was a really different rhythmic structure than your traditional bluegrass band. And um, I wanted to get his take on it. And one of the coolest things that he said back to me, you know, I was asking him, you know, how's the chop fitting into you? Is it feeling good? Is there anything you'd like more or less of? And he just looked over at me and said, oh, man, I'll, I'll never tell you how to play. And I'll never have to tell you how to play on any of these tunes. And the times in my life I've had a budget to hire whoever I wanted for a recording session or a gig, I hired people that could think for themselves. I want to hear how you want to play these songs. And there was just something so empowering or um, exciting about the fact that Tony Rice would want to hear how I played and there was just a lot of ethos that I learned along the way from him about trusting another musician, trusting them to hear um, what the right response is or just to hear in a musical way, which really all came back to listening. And um, he really believed that if you're listening, you're going to learn where your limitations are, where you need to grow as a musician. You don't need somebody else telling you how to do it or, or what it is you need to work on that your ear is really going to teach you that. So um, it was just a great opportunity to, uh, and a great invitation to step into more of how I wanted to play, which in traditional music, you're not always encouraged to do that. So it was a uh, great um, encouragement from a hero to, to, develop my own sound and um, trust that sound as I go along. Yes, this is Matthew Mundy. And uh, uh, Tony Rice is, ever since my days of playing and probably days of being born, I've heard the name Tony Rice. Uh, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is I want to just listen to his music. Such, such great recordings. Manzanita. Cold on the Shoulder, all these records. Skaggs and Rice, a self-titled uh, album with Roan County, Banks of Ohio. All those songs are so great. Uh, I think Roan, Hills of Roan County could be, in my opinion, the, the vocal performance of the 70s. Just, just outstanding tone control and so forth. Great albums. Uh, my mom had those albums around. I guess my first album purchase, bluegrass album purchase would have been still inside. 
around 1982, and I didn't understand the music. I just knew it was good music. It wasn't bluegrass. I just knew that the, the tones were great and um, just such beautiful, beautiful sound coming out of that Martin D-28. Finally got a chance to see Tony. I was 12 at the Denton Festival in 1982. And um, he was just so celebrated at that festival, like a, like he was a, a big, big star. You know, he came out, did a couple of hot licks on the um, on the microphone, testing his microphone, and people just went berserk. Got to also see him in 83 at Myrtle Beach with the uh, Bluegrass Album Band. And uh, I think that was Jerry Douglas's first show with the Bluegrass Album Band. Uh, also, beautiful, beautiful music. Um Got to see the Rice Unit, I think, in 85. And finally got to play uh, music with, with Tony in, I think it was 93, at the Bass Mountain Bluegrass Festival. Uh, Ricky Simpkins asked me to come fill in. Uh, Goodrow had called out, so I got to do that. and was just uh, nervous as I could be. And, and on my way out, uh, getting ready to go, one of the keys slipped on my mandolin. One of the keys broke off, one of the pearl buttons so i got on the phone and harry and Jeannie west had a music store at that time it was right on the way so i got the keys uh went there and harry west put them on for me and anyway long story short got got to the festival there and my man looking would not stay in tune for nothing i think red-haired boy we did backstage so i don't what i understand tony never practiced so uh, we run over just about half of that team my man was just as sour as a grape uh, but once got on stage, everything melded, molded right together. And, uh, Tony's rhythm is uh, way over the top. People, people just don't understand uh, until you play in a musical setting with with that rhythm. Uh, what it's like? It's not boom chick. There's such great rhythm players. There's well, David Parmley, Jimmy Haley, Del McCurk, a bunch of great rhythm players, but Tony had something special uh, with his timing. Uh, a lot of syncopation, a lot of cross-picking downstrokes in his rhythm that was so complimentary to, uh, to a mandolin player. You know, it just sounded so great. Um, got to record with Tony uh, on Bela Flex record. Uh, I also remember having a hard time with it. There was some team, one of the teams, had an E minor F vamp at the beginning. And I had such a hard time doing the timing feel of that. And, and Tony was booth right next to me there, uh, partition between us. And I just I listened to him, how calm he was. And it just... Uh, really helped me hear the pocket and feel the pocket, you know. Uh, players like Tony come along once in a, a million years, you know, where they're, they're so great, but they don't they don't seem to drive it down your throat great. Uh, they're uh, generous, I guess, generous players. Uh, but Tony Rice, well, I mean, you know, uh, he's been my hero since day one, you know, playing music. Uh, I, I, I can't... Uh, say such a loss for his family feel for them but his playing had such sophistication as as did his vocal and song choices uh sophistication elegance you know he was a true craftsman 
I will say that. You know, he's the kind of person I, I put with Earl Scruggs. You know, it seems like whatever they did, if it not had been music, they would have been great at it. You know, so you you they were they chose music, music chose them, they chose music, what have you. But they were great at that. And had they had been in anything else, an engineer, doctor, what have you, uh, they would have been tops at it. Tony would have been tops at it. You know, his playing was so good, and you know, it's a it's a big big loss for bluegrass. He really stands tall as a statue, as a statue for anybody who comes along. You know, has came along after him. I had the great fortune of meeting Tony Rice a few times. One of those times was at Merlefest in 2006 when I had recently finished my first recording project. After Tony's set, somehow my dad convinced me, a bashful 16-year-old, to walk around to the backstage tent to give Tony a copy and snap a photo. I now realize that I was being that guy, but in any event, I gave him my CD, which he almost immediately chucked in his case, and then he graciously put his arm around me for a quick photo. I knew at the time that I was in the presence of a legend, but I didn't realize how much that photo would come to mean to me in time. Physical documentation of a brief moment spent in the presence of the great master of bluegrass guitar. Thanks, Dad, and thanks to Tony for all the inspiration and classic recordings you left for us to cherish for a lifetime.